right, well, good morning, Bridge family. And uh, hey, if you got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, hey, if you guys could do this for me, uh, first of all, if you're new with us, uh, welcome. We are uh, one church in two locations, meeting here and then joining with us right now in Columbia, uh, because we genuinely believe that it's better to worship, serve, and be on mission uh, where you live. So, hey, Bridge family, both here and in Columbia, uh, help me say hey to your church family. Do it right now. Yeah, man. Hey, Columbia. Good to see you guys. And uh, hey, this may feel really random, uh, but uh, there's a group of people that we have never said thank you to before in uh, our services ever. So help help me out. Um, There is a group of people who have arguably the most thankless job in our entire church. They show up at 6.30 a.m. and they usually don't leave until about 1 p.m. Their entire job is to make other people look awesome. And probably the only time you ever think about them is if they make a mistake. So we're going to change that today. Could you guys both here and in Columbia turn behind you and show a thank you to our tech teams? Would you guys do that real quick? We never, ever do it. That's right. I'll do it better than that. Come on, man. That's right, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, tech teams. Man, we never say thank you to them and, uh, and they deserve it. So I just, I want to do that heading into today. All right. Well, hey guys, um, here's who we are today. Uh, we are in week three of a series that we're just calling Killing What's Killing You. And that comes from a, a little quote by a, a, an old dead theologian, a guy named John Owen, who simply said, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so each week of the series, what we're doing is we're taking like one major issue, like a huge issue in our culture, and, uh, and we're just addressing it like, man, how do we get freedom from that issue um, through the gospel and the power of the scriptures? And uh, let me just kind of go ahead and let me preface this sermon today. This sermon is a little more teachy than it is preachy, uh, and, and it's a very personal sermon for me. Um, in some ways, of everything that I could teach in this series, um, this is the best uh, message I could give you from a personal standpoint, um, and you'll see why. Uh, but I have a I have a problem before I get into kind of the issue we're hitting today. Here's a problem: in every other week of this series, you are walking in with a very obvious uh, need in your life for help in the area. So, for instance, um, two weeks ago when we hit like worry and anxiety, um, to this day, that's the most downloaded sermon in Bridge history two weeks ago because everybody walks in like, man, I know that I have an issue with fear and worry and anxiety. People know that. Um, When we hit issues like comparison, envy, uh, bitterness and unforgiveness, um, when we even hit uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, even things like pride from last week, um, there's things in our lives that we can look at and go, man, I see how that's destroying me. I can see that. And I know that I need help. The one that we're hitting today is the exact opposite. Um, The Bible teaches the one we're hitting today, by its very nature, it blinds you to its presence before it begins to do its work in your life. Um, And and so a little behind eight ball. And the issue we're hitting today is greed. Okay. Now, before you head for the doors, uh, I want to go ahead and get this uh, out front. This is not an I want something from you sermon. You're going to see it in the next few minutes. This is an I want something for you sermon. And the reason this is so hard for me to teach on is because here, here's our working assumption that makes it really hard to preach about the issue of greed. Here, here's why. Because our working assumption is that in order to be greedy, you've got to be rich. So I don't even have a chance to be greedy, right? That's what most of us think. I don't even have a chance. Uh, and here's the other problem. Uh, nobody thinks that they're rich. Nobody, I've never met a single person that thought that. In fact, this is really interesting. Track with me. If you've ever heard these stats, this is really interesting. Let me show you something really quick. And then let me, let me show you how this plays itself out in our hearts. A couple of years ago, Gallup did a poll where they asked people, average American, 
hey, how much money would you have to have um, in order to be rich? And here's the, here was the average answer that came back. The average answer was $150,000. If you have $150,000, the average per year, if that's what you earn per year, the average American goes, you're rich. Now, here's what's interesting. If you ever talk to somebody who makes $150,000 per year, what they're going to say is, are you kidding? I'm not rich. Are you crazy? I'm not rich. So what they did is they changed the survey. They went, hey, let's only talk to people who make $35,000 a year or less. And then let's ask them, how much money do you have to make per year in order to be rich? And here was their response, 35,000 and under. They said, if you make 75 thousand dollars per year they said you're rich now i shared this with our church a couple years ago and in the 11 o'clock service when i showed that stat there was a guy in the service that audibly went ha (laughs) right because if you ask somebody who makes seventy five thousand dollars a year if they're rich they're gonna go are you crazy are you crazy now here's what's interesting in order to just kind of put this in perspective these same people they polled the subscribers to money magazine so think about this. These are people who love, you know, they, they have so much money that they need to read about it in between times where they're spending it. Okay. And they went, hey, subscribers money magazine, how much money do you have to have in order to be rich? Here was the answer. The answer was $5 million. So think about this. So somebody went, woohoo, amen, right over here. I was like, all right. Okay. I want you to think about this. What that means is that according to them, if you have $1 million in liquid assets, not rich, $2 million in liquid assets, not rich, $4 million in liquid assets. Nope. Not rich. Four and a half million dollars in liquid assets. Still not rich. Okay. And listen, I am willing, I've never done this. I am willing to bet one of my arms that if you sat down with somebody who had $5 million in liquid assets and you said, are you rich? You know what they'd say? No way. No way I'm rich, okay? Now, let me put this in perspective. You may hear that and you may go, okay, that, that's crazy. Let me put this in perspective for you, okay? Right now, you may be going, none of this applies to me, okay? If you have a combined household income of $45,000, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. And I knew that's what your response would be. <laughs> Uh, I knew that both here and at, you know, listen, I just gave you incredible news. I just told most of you, you're rich. And I knew that both here and in Columbia, that no one, when I said that, would stand up and go, oh, praise God. You know, I woke up this morning feeling sorry for myself. And I came to church and the pastor told me that I've been rich and I've been rich for years. Amazing. You know, that kind of thing. Nobody's going to do that. I knew that the collective response would be, I knew that. Do you know why? Because nobody anywhere feels rich. Now, I'm going to explain, I'm going to explain why that is here in just a second. I'm going to show you why that is. But let me help you just to, just to help you because I know nobody in this room is rich. I know that. Nobody is. What I, let me help you be able to identify, not, not in yourself, but in the people around you, be able to identify which ones of them are rich. And here's how you know, okay? Rich people, they do this strange thing. It's called upgrade. Rich people do this weird thing called upgrade. Here's what upgrade is. Upgrade is when you have a perfectly working thing and then you have so much extra money just lying around that you take the perfectly working thing and you go buy the exact same thing but a little newer with your money 
and, and just get something that basically does the exact same thing. That's an upgrade. And I know right now everybody in this room is going, well, who would do that? I I've heard of crazy people doing things like that. Let me give you an example. So, so for instance, now I know nobody's done this, but here's an example so you'll know who the rich people are in your life. Did you know there are actually people who every now and then they'll take a car that works perfectly and they'll drive that car to a dealership. Now, I, I, what I'm about to tell you is insane. I know you can't believe it. It's true. People actually do this. They'll drive the working car to a dealership and leave that car there along with lots of money and then drive away with a car. I know that's crazy. That's what that, there are actually people who do this kind of thing. Um, I'll give you another one. <clears throat> there are rich people. I've heard, I've heard of rich people who they have kitchens. <clears throat> And in their kitchens, they have countertops and ovens and microwaves and refrigerators. <clears throat> and there are actually people who just rip it all out <laughs> and replace it with countertops and refrigerators and microwaves and ovens. Now, you're laughing because you can't believe anybody would ever do that. That's, I know that's why you're laughing, Ryan. That actually happens. Here's another one. There are rich people who uh, every now and then, like about once every two years... They'll go to the mall and they'll stand in line at the mall. Now, rich people hate lines because they got things to do and people to see. But every, every two years, they'll stand in line at the mall at the Apple store. <clears throat> and they'll go. And while they're standing in line, if one of their buddies texts them, hey, bro, where are you at? Then they'll text back, I'm standing in line to get a new iPhone. And they're texting it on their working iPhone. I know that's insane. I, you can't believe it. I'll give you one more just to help you figure out who the other rich people are in your life. Okay, just, I know none, this is none of us, but <clears throat> just to help you figure out who the other people are. Help me finish this one. Yeah, I'll, I'll need some help on this one. There are actually rich people who will wake up and go stand in front of the door of a closet that's full of clothes. And while they're standing, now you got to help me, help me finish this. While they're standing there, they'll look at the clothes and they'll say, I don't have yeah, it's insane. They just they have so much money lying around. They'll just do this. So listen, here's what I know. What we need is we need something just in case we are ever in this position. What the Bible has done is it's given us a, a way to have the resources that God entrusts to us, but to do it in a way that honors him and is actually good for our souls and does our souls good, good and not harm. And that's what we have in this passage in 1 Timothy 6. So here's what I want to do. The whole, this whole sermon works like this. I want to help you figure out how to have wealth without wealth having you. That's the whole goal of this sermon, the whole goal of this passage, to figure out how to have wealth without wealth having you, okay? So pick up with me in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's do this thing together. And this is a guy named Paul writing to a very young pastor. And what it, listen, what he's doing is he's trying to instruct him on how to talk to wealthy people in his church. That's really interesting. And listen to what he says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, I'm coming back to that, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to, listen, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that, now listen to how this is worded. So that they may take hold of that which is, listen, truly life. You'll see that right there, truly life, okay? 
Now, I'm going to come back to that. I just want to point some things out to you really quick. One thing this passage does that helps us arguably the most is what it does is it, it helps us define what greed is and is not. And uh, can we just all acknowledge something really quick? Most people, because they never sit down and try to put a definition on greed, what we tend to do is we tend to default mode to a definition of greed that's a bad definition. Now, now listen, I'm going to show you how this works. If you spend your whole life with a bad definition of greed, you'll walk around your whole life either doing one of two things. Either you'll have false guilt or you'll give false condemnation. Your whole life, you're going to do both those things. Having false guilt or giving false condemnation. Now, here's what I mean. Most people, because they never think about this, they default to this definition of greed. A greedy person is anyone who has more than me. Honestly, that's the honest definition we tend to have in our hearts. A greedy person is a person who has uh, more than me. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Earlier this year, a church planner who shall remain nameless for reasons you'll discover in about 30 seconds um, drove into town to spend a little time with me for me just to coach him in, uh, in pastoring a church. And we were driving to lunch, and we passed a, a really nice neighborhood a little north of here. And, uh, and he pointed to the neighborhood, and he just said, man, look at those houses. And, uh, and I just kind of offhandedly just said, yeah, man, um, there's actually a family in our church that's done really well for themselves, business owners, that uh, they live uh, in, in that neighborhood. And he just sort of sarcastically fired off a, a little sarcastic comment. He said, huh. Sounds like you need to preach a sermon on greed. And, uh, and uh, it, it, it tripped a wire in me. <laughs> and so I, I fired back at him a little emotionally. I said, well, hey, man, here's what you need to know about that family. That family's given hundreds of thousands of dollars to kingdom advancing purposes. Did you know that family Tri- paid round trip plane tickets to fly a family in their community group to China and back who is adopting that family actually paid for the entire leadership staff of our church to fly up to Chicago to a conference paid for all of our food, all of our lodging and everything to fly us back for no other reason than that he loves us. And I just said, Hey man, I don't think he's got a greed problem. I think you got a jealousy problem. Now listen, wait. And then I went, I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Right? And that's what happened. Now, listen, if you do that, if you spend your whole life with a definition of greed, a greedy person is anybody who has more than me, you'll spend your entire life either having false guilt when you have more than other people or giving false condemnation when you have less than other people. Can I show you something from this passage that may surprise you? You may may never have heard a preacher point this out to you before. Did you notice what this passage said? So here's what this passage said, if you were paying attention. It said, God who richly provides with everything to, and I think what most of us would think, God who richly provides with everything to, the answer is probably give it all away. That's not what the passage said. Here's what the passage says. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Isn't that interesting? That God loves us so much that he has diverted his blessings, his resources into our lives. And one purpose he's done that is just so we can enjoy it. Just so that we can, in the words of C.S. Lewis, run up the sunbeam to the sun and praise the giver for the gift. So listen, let me help you have a good definition for greed. Listen, greed is not measured by what you have. Greed is not even measured by what you want. Greed is measured, listen, by the price that you are willing to pay to get it. There is nothing wrong with having wealth. Absolutely nothing wrong. The problem is when wealth has you. Remember, what was it that made Judas betray Jesus? It was not that Judas hated Jesus. It was that he loved money more 
then he loved Jesus. That's greed. So here's the definition for greed. Greed is any time we begin to love the gifts more than the giver. That's greed. Greed is what we do when we love the gifts more than the giver. Now, what this passage is designed to do, it gives us four specific charges to help us figure out how. So here's the question. It's helping us figure out how can we have wealth without wealth having us. So, so listen, this passage does not want you not to be rich. In fact, I'll, sh- I'll lay my cards on the table. In preparation for this sermon, I literally prayed for you that God would make uh, divert wealth to all of you. I prayed that for you this week. That's not what this passage doesn't want. What this passage wants is for you to be able to have wealth without wealth, without wealth having you. Okay, so it gives four specific charges for how we do that. Now, this is what I call a grip it and rip it sermon. I'm just going to walk right through this passage word for word. Okay, so here's what it does. Here we go. Four things. It says, number one, it says, number one, charge them not to be haughty. Charge the rich in this present age not to be haughty. Now, part of me wants to go, how did he know? (laughs) You know, how did he know that wealthy people can have a tendency to be haughty. Well, here's what, here's what the Bible knows, and you got to know this about you. What the Bible knows is that you are going to have a tendency to believe this lie. My self-worth is based on my wealth. That's a lie that your heart is going to tend to believe. My self-worth is tied to my wealth. Some of you have actually known wealthy people who, when they became wealthier, as they were wealthy, you started to notice, man, they don't act like they're just an expert on financial issues they act like they're an expert on everything. Why? Because there's something about how the human heart works to tie our worth to our wealth. And a lot of times what happens is as God gives it to you, uh, you begin acting weird and doing weird things. I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's an old preacher story about uh, a, a, a wealthy widow in a church that walks up to her pastor and she says, hey, pastor, I'll give you $1,000 if I can choose the hymns. And so she gives him $1,000 and then she turns around to the church and she, she goes, I choose him and him and him and him. Come on, man. That's all. But you got to give me more than that. You got to give me more than that. That's it. You can do that. You can begin to do weird things. Now, here's what the Bible teaches. Now, now listen, listen. If you want to know how much you're worth, you look to Golgotha, not your bank account. If you want to know your value, you look to the cross, not your 401k. And what you'll find is that the gospel tends to lift the low heads and lower the lifted heads. That's what the gospel always does. Um, I'll give two stories in this one point. I won't be like this the whole sermon, I promise. Um, a couple of years ago, I've got a, a pastor mentor who, um, he's a pastor out west. And he just so happens to, to be a senior pastor at one of the largest, uh, or one of the, the wealthiest churches in America. And because of that, you know, he just tends to have some meetings with people who have high net worths. And he was telling this story about how he started to notice that the staff in his church uh, were doing this really unhealthy thing. When he would finish a meeting, they began asking, what does he do? How, how much is she worth? And they kind of they asked the question. And he, he knew, this is his axiom, and I learned this years ago. He knew it is impossible. He said, man, you cannot be awed by wealthy people and be a pastor. It is impossible to pastor somebody and be intimidated by somebody at the same time. And I've learned that. And, and here's what he did. So there, there came a day where he had an all-staff meeting, had a couple hundred staff members there. And uh, during the staff meeting, he was teaching and a low-income single mom came to the church to request prayer for him. And usually he would have stayed in the staff meeting, but he said, man, he needed to teach his staff something. So he told the staff, hey guys, somebody really important just showed up. Um, I need to leave to go pray with this person. You guys carry on. 
And he went downstairs and he prayed uh, with this lady, came back up. And sure enough, as soon as the staff meeting was over, they did exactly what he expected. They gathered around and asked the question, hey, what does she do and what's she worth? And he leaned in and he said, she's a single mom and she's worth the blood of Jesus. See that? It's a lie that you can begin to equate your self-worth with your wealth. And the truth is, you are exactly as valuable as the cross says you are. What the cross says is, I am so bad that Jesus had to die for me. And I am so, uh, and he, I am so loved by God that he was glad to die for me. See, it lowers the high head and it lifts the lowered head. All right, so number one, it says, charge them not to be haughty. Okay, now, number two, number two, here's the charge. It also says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty, listen to that word, the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides. Now, did you see that? Set your hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides. Now, now do you understand why he says this? Let me explain why he says this, okay? There's a lot of you here who what you think, your whole life what you thought is, I'll be generous when? I thought, man, uh, if I ever get this much money or if God ever increases my income to this level, then I'll be really good at being rich and I'll be very generous and I'll give lots of it away. Here's what's really interesting. In America, the exact opposite is true. Statistically in America, the wealthier you become, the lower and lower the percentage of your income you give. That is almost 100% always true. The wealthier you become, the lower and lower the percentage of income you give. Now, do you guys know why that is? I'm going to explain it. Do you know why that is? Because what happens is as you begin to get wealth, you begin to believe this illusion. I can save my way into safety. That's the illusion you begin to believe. I can save my way into safety. Actually, I'll prove this to you. You you already believe this. Let me show you that you believe it. So I was talking to some guys over lunch about this principle this week, and I was getting a lot of head nods. And uh, and here's how this works, okay? Think about this. At different points in your life, and some of you are at the very beginning, so just track with me. At different points in your life, here's something that's always changing. How much you have in your bank account is always changing, right? Uh, You might be here and you're in college and you open up your bank account and you have $10 in your bank account. Um, I I got a pastor friend who planted a church near a college and one day the offering buckets came by and there was a sausage biscuit in the offering bucket with a note that said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto thee. Isn't that amazing? So, so you may be in that spot where it's like, man, uh, in college, I had $10 in my bank. And then you may have gotten out of college and uh, you got your first stable part-time job. And you're like, man, I have $100 in my bank account. The amount changed. And then let's say you got your first like stable, you know, normal uh, career type job. And you got to the spot where it's like, man, you have $1,000 in your bank account. You may be a little older. You may have $10,000 in your bank accounts. I've actually sat across the table pastoring people who have nearly $10 million in their bank account. So listen, it's always changing. The amount you have in your bank account is always changing. Now think about this for everybody in the room. And you test me. Am I not about to speak truth? Here's what always stays the same. The amount always change and he- changes. Here's what always stays the same. You cannot imagine having any less than you do right now. I got a lot of head nods in the eight, got a lot of head nods in this room. That the amount that's in your account changes all the time. You cannot imagine having any less than you do now. Do you know why that is? Because you begin to believe the lie, I can save my way 
into safety. Listen, I know this from, from experience. Did you guys know that people with $10 million in the bank look at people with $3 million in the bank and they go, how do they survive? What would they do if they lost $2 million? What would they ever do? And wouldn't you love to have that problem? But they cannot imagine having any less than they do now. Now, let me teach you. So this passage says, don't do this. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches are uncertain. All these factors can change. They cannot keep you safe. Here's what remains the same. The God that richly provides. Now, before I show you how the Bible teaches this, uh, uh, if I just straight out said it, some of you guys would write me off as a heretic. So just track with me and let me preface this with a little theology. The Bible does not teach something that's commonly taught in America. It's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the teaching or the belief that the more I give to God financially, the more he has to return to me financially. If I give him 10, he'll give me 100. If I give him 100, he'll give me 1,000. I give him 1,000, he'll give me 10,000, okay? So what that does is in that model, uh, God is not the prize. God is the means to get the real prize and that stuff. And let me just say this. If the best thing that your God can give you is a Benz, your God does not love you very much. There are better things that God can give you, namely himself, okay? So number one, we do not believe in the prosperity gospel. On the other hand, there are some people who in reaction to the prosperity gospel, they've begun to believe what what we might call the poverty gospel. And the poverty gospel is the belief that actually the less I have, the more godly I am. That if I was really godly, I'd be penniless and I'd give every, every last cent that I got away and I would live, you know, in a hut in Africa, among the war, that, that kind of thing. So now, now listen, let me, let me blow both of these up. We can't believe the prosperity gospel because you go home today and read about six verses earlier in 1 Timothy 6. And here's what it says. It rebukes teachers who, quote, imagined that godliness was a means of financial gain. It says that's an, that's an imaginable, it's not true. But then on the other hand, we can't believe the poverty gospel because this passage says that God provides us with things to enjoy, that it's okay for you to have stuff. It's even okay for you to have more than other people. Now, we don't believe in a prosperity gospel. We don't believe in a poverty gospel. Here's what the Bible teaches. It teaches a provision gospel. That as we put our faith and we exercise faith by bringing to God the first of what he gives to us, that God gives us a promise that he will provide for all of our needs. That's a promise. Return to me, the Bible says, return to me the first part of your income, the first part of what I give you, and I promise that I'll take care of you. Now, listen, I'll be honest with you. For the first about six years I was at the bridge, I never taught this because I was afraid of sounding like a crazy TV preacher. But guys, the Bible just says this. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for the width of measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The book of 2 Corinthians, speaking in financial terms, says whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And then it says, my God will multiply back to you what you give. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, honor the Lord with your wealth for the, think about this, the first, with the first fruits of your crops, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now listen, this may not make any sense to you at all. It may not make any sense. But what I found as a pastor is that in my life, when I meet with people, there are generally two types of people. There are some people who say, man, pastor, we don't understand it. We make plenty, but it never seems to be enough. 
And there's some people who say, man, pastor, we don't understand it. We don't make much, but it always seems to be enough. And you know what the difference is? One of those persons has learned to trust God by bringing him the first of what they get. And they're seeing the fulfillment of that promise. Now, listen, this, again, I told you the beginning of this, uh, this sermon. This is kind of personal to me. Um, this learning to walk in faith in this area of our life and my family was one of the greatest spiritual turning points um, that we ever had. Um, yes, I've mentioned before, when we first got married, um, I, I was a youth pastor in northern Kentucky. You know, heads up, uh, very few people strike it rich as a youth pastor in northern Kentucky. That's just to tip you off. And, uh, and my total take-home income, our first year of marriage, it was $27,000, total take-home income. And Jan and I had this moment where we were first married, and we sat down to do the budget, and we went, okay, here are all the bills, here's what's got to go out, and here's, here's what's coming in, here's, the sound, here's what's coming in, and we went, oh, we had no crap moment, uh, because we went, oh, what, what's going out is a lot more than what's coming in, what, what are we going to do? And here's the decision we made. Early on in our marriage, we just decided, man, we've got to trust the God that richly provides more than the uncertainty of riches. And we went, man, we don't know how this is going to work, but we're going to return the first 10% of what we give back to him. And let's just see what happens. And I've shown it to some of you before, but we kept track in our journal, a one-page journal. It's, you know, totally full, single space of all the unexpected, just sort of blessings of income that came in that year. Guys, we were, we had this, uh, we were totally broke. We had this little $800 grand dam that I had back then. We ended up selling it for $800. We loved that car. We prayed over it. We anointed it with oil <clears throat> about a quart a week, you know, so that kind of, <laughs> and it was just like, man, that thing, it just kept going and it kept going and it kept going. Uh, we had, it was very strange. Uh, apparently the previous owner of the condo we were living in had overpaid their property taxes. And the way that property tax law was in Mount Washington, Kentucky back then was they couldn't find them. And so the government was legally required to give us the $700 that they had overpaid in their property taxes. I may be the only person on earth that the IRS paid me. That happened to us. Uh, we had an elder in our church just walk up, give me a $100 handshake that week and just say, hey man, just want to bless you guys. And oh, there was a, I'll give, I got to move on. I'll give you one last one. Uh, way back then when we first got married, there was this new website nobody had heard of. It was called amazon.com. And, uh, and we, we found a way to sell our old textbooks on there. We made like $350. We ended up mapping it all out. And our tithe back then was $230. And when it was all done, we figured out that the Lord had unexpectedly brought in $3,848. He had just done it. Why? Because you don't have to trust in the uncertainty of riches. We trust in the God who richly provides. And what we found is that every time that this may feel really weird for me to share with you guys, I, I simply want to say, man, follow me as I follow Christ. Every time that the Lord has increased our income, we haven't just increased the amount that we give, our family trust increased the percentage so that this year we are on pace to give away about 26% of our income. And we love it. And what we found, every year we sit back and we go, oh my gosh, it's impossible to outgive you, God. We, we just can't seem to do it. So guys, let me put a bow on this. Stock markets, they're uncertain. Job security, there's ultimately no such thing. Savings accounts that can make you safe. Guys, all it takes is one rogue cell in your body to take you down. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever.
Don't trust in riches. Trust in the God who richly provides. And I got to put, put a bow on this thing. Let, let, me, let me do the last two, okay? Next, it says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. That's the type of riches God wants us to aim for. To be generous and ready to share. Now, let me just shoot you straight. The reason, one of the reasons that God wants us to handle our resources in that way is honestly, it's really fun. It's honestly really fun. And let me show you the type of joy that it gives you when this happens. So let me introduce you to some people. If you're new with us, I'm trying to do this a little frequently because we have uh, so many new people. So this is my family. So here's, uh, by the way, a little personal announcement coming up here in about 15 seconds. So you guys celebrate with me. All right. Here's my family. This is my youngest daughter. I'll youngest, oldest. Here's my youngest daughter. This is Felicity. She's three now. These are looking very American and very confused. This is Felicity. Okay. This over here, this is uh, my precious seven-year-old Eliana. She's our gorgeous little gymnast. This is, uh, this is my, my wife, Jana. I like this picture. Now, if she's four, 11 and a half, she's got tall shoes on in this picture. It's cheating right here. This is Jana. And then let me introduce you to somebody you've never met yet, neither have I, because we're adopting again. Let me just, let me, that's right, man. Let me just kind of get that out there. Howerton family is adopting again. Uh, listen, I'm outnumbered. I need a boy. And, and listen, a little commercial for adoption, you can special order a boy when you adopt. You know, it's one of the great things. Designer baby, you can do it, you know. And so I need one. I, I need, so you guys can pray for me. We're about to go from two to three. We got to move from playing man to man to playing zone. So you guys kind of tr- just track with me. And uh, it, here's what's going to happen to all of you in this room. Here in a few months, uh, by God's grace, I'm going to bring in my son to this church for the first time. And I'm going to introduce him to you. And here's what I'm going to do. In, uh, and I'm not kidding one iota. I'm going to bring him in and we're going to do the Lion King thing in every service. <laughs> we're doing it. This, that moment's coming. And uh, here's what's going to happen that day. Not only will my heart explode that day, but there's about 1,500 of you that will also have full hearts that day. And here's why. Because a few months ago, a lot of you stepped forward to sacrifice toward our No More Fatherless initiative. And one thing that we did is we set up an adoption fund to help the next 50 families at the bridge adopt. And listen, I'm not going to get any more than any normal member of our church. Okay? Just want you to know that. I'm also not going to get any less. Praise God. You know? (laughs) And, uh, and what's going to happen that day is about 1,500 of you that day are in your hearts going to be able to say, I helped that happen. I did that. I helped that happen. And that will give you a joy that you can't get. What you'll say that day is knowing that is a lot more valuable than having the three screens Netflix subscription. See that? Be rich in good works, generous, ready to share. Okay, now let me move on to the last one. And and this may be the most important one. It also charges us, the passage says, so that, here's why, that they may take hold, listen to how it says this, of that which is truly life. Why does God want us to use our resources that way? So that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Guys, here's the lie that greed, when it sets in our hearts, wants us to believe. It wants us to believe contentment is just around the corner. That's the lie. Man, if I get that size house, if I have that car, if we get to that income level, if I can increase the fun money budget line in my budget to that amount, then I'll be content. Guys, here's the truth. If you can't be happy now, you won't be happy then. If you can't be happy now, you won't be happy then. There is only one thing on earth that anyone has ever gotten that they have sat down and said, my soul is satisfied. One thing, Jesus, that's the only thing. Um, if you are here and you're not a Christian, right now you may be going, that's not true, man. I don't think that's true. 
Um, if that's you, I've got a lost person that's also not a Christian that would like to argue with you. Um, a couple years ago, <clears throat> I was uh, reading a, a 60 Minutes interview, and I came across an interview with a, a little-known guy named Tom Brady. <laughs> and uh, Tom Brady, in this interview, he said it was one of the most haunting things I've ever heard anybody say. Tom Brady, in the middle of this interview, looked up at the reporter, and this is what he said, and it, it's a, this is a dated quote. You're going to know by the amount of rings he says he has. Tom Brady said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there is something greater out there for me? Listen, he said, I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. That's Tom Brady. Okay, now let me put that in perspective really quick. Right now, there are around 7 billion people on this planet. Among those 7 billion people, there are only 10 of them who are quarterbacks in the NFL that are not journeyman-style quarterbacks. Of those 10, there is only one of them that has five Super Bowl rings. And of every Super Bowl quarterback that has ever gotten a Super Bowl ring, there is only one that has ever gotten <clears throat> five Super Bowl rings. Guys, I want you to think about this. Tom Brady has a net worth of $180 million. I am very confident saying Tom Brady is wealthier than you. Men in the room, bad news for you. Tom Brady's better looking than you. <laughs> he is. Tom Brady, five Super Bowl rings, the pinnacle of his career. They will, listen, they will build a statue to Tom Brady outside of Gillette Stadium when he retires. They did an entire 30 for 30 just to shame every NFL team that did not draft Tom Brady, Victoria's secret supermodel wife. Tom Brady's got it going on, okay? There are, listen, there are little boys right now who go out in their front yard and throw a football and dream about the day when they can be Tom Brady. Listen, guys, nobody's doing that for you right now. There is no 12-year-old in your neighborhood that right now is going, man, when I was 12, I saw Stan from accounting fill out that TPS report. And I knew, I knew that nobody's doing that for you, man. Tom Brady has all of these things going on. Do you know what he says? Here's what Tom Brady says. He says, God, it's got to be more than this. Do you know why he's saying that? He's saying, man, I got all those things. And what I found out was that none of them were truly life. None of them. There is only one thing that anyone has ever acquired that made them say, my soul is now satisfied. Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and he is my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's the only thing that we will ever acquire that will do that for us. So man, let's press towards him, the only thing that can satisfy. Okay, will you guys pray with me, please? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the enlightening truth of your word. And God, I pray that today, that right now, as we look full in his wonderful face, that bloody face, that crucified and risen face of Jesus, that as we look full in his wonderful face, the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, would you set our hearts on things above and not of things of this world? And God, make us people who we know that you have freely given to us. And in response, man, we just, we just freely live. We freely live with no false guilt, no false condemnation. 
we just stand before you as people who say, man, everything that I have and everything that I am is yours because you are my true treasure. Jesus, would you show yourself as beautiful to us in a way that breaks the enchantment of wealth over our lives? And God, make us people who can run after you with a true, pure-hearted, reckless abandon. In the crucified and risen name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.